When it comes to the how-tos of holiness, I realized this week that it all turns on the therefore. Let me show you what I mean. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, out of the English Standard Version. It all turns on the therefore. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." It all comes down to the therefore. We see here in this passage the how-tos of holiness. Or put another way, a recipe for living clean. If you've had a conversation with me, there's a very good chance I began the conversation when we first met by asking you how you're doing and following up with, uh, you living clean? And I often get a blank stare because people aren't used to this yet, especially the first time. How's it going, man? You living clean? And people, it gives them pause because you don't really know how to answer, right? Because if you're honest, what would the answer be? Not really. Or if it's been a decent week, you'd be like, kinda. Right? Because none of us are ever truly living clean. We see here in, this, in today's passage a recipe for doing just that. The how-tos of holiness, a recipe for living clean. But first we've got to ask ourselves the question, why bother? Right? Why should we bother living clean? Why should we bother learning the how-tos of holiness? This hinges the why bother question hinges on two further questions. You see, either you're a random evolutionary accident, right? In which case, if that's true, if we're all just a random evolutionary accident, then look, do whatever you want to survive. The do whatever it takes ethic makes a lot of sense, if that's true. If you're just a random evolutionary accident, do whatever it takes to survive, fine. But, there's a chance you were designed to live a certain way. It's kind of an either-or, right? You're either a random evolutionary accident or you were designed to live a certain way. And if that's true, if you were designed, so just humor me for a moment. Say you don't believe this yet. Great. I just love that you're in church and that you're doing this even while you're working that out. So just humor me for a second. Assume for a moment that you were designed to live a certain way. If that was true, the more closely aligned your life was with the way you were designed to live, the happier you'd be. Does that make sense? Like if you were designed to be a basketball player and you played a lot of basketball, you would be a lot happier than you would be if you never picked up a basketball. Right? Because you were designed to do a thing. And if you do that thing that you were designed to do, there's a chance you'll be happier than you would be if you didn't do it. You see, at its root, I believe holiness is ultimately pragmatic. It's ultimately a common sense kind of thing. 
So we all know this intuitively. A few examples. We all know intuitively it's better to be drug-free than drug-addicted. Right? Do you know somebody who's addicted to drugs? You might know somebody who's full-blown in addiction right now, and you know that it's ugly. You might know someone who has come through the addiction journey, and you know they're still on it. You know that they're always going to be walking it out. And you know it ain't fun. Maybe that's your story. Right? Not I mean, if you know this intuitively. right? It's, we know it's better to be drug-free than drug-addicted. Another example. We all know it's better to be fit and strong than gluttonous and obese. Right? Nobody wakes up and says, someday I want to be 600 pounds. You ever see those stories on television? I, I can hardly watch these poor people literally trapped in their body. So, I mean, it's true that we all enjoy pizza and beer and hockey night in Canada or Monday night football. I get it. Right? I like pizza and I love beer. But I also know that if I ate as much pizza as I wanted to and drank as much beer as I wanted to, like if I let my appetites run unrestrained, if I became a glutton, if I practiced gluttony, we all know what would happen to my life. It would go off the rails. We all know it's better to be fit and strong than gluttonous and obese. Don't you all wish you were 17 again? Remember what it was like? Some of you are still 17. God bless you. Enjoy it while you can. When I was 17, I could just run and run and run and run and run. Now, to get to that max VO2 state, I have to train all winter long. So that when I come to this summer's triathlon, I don't embarrass you or my wife or Jesus. But I have to train. I have to run and run and run and run and run. In the winter, I've been running at the Y. You know how many laps you have to do to get to like 10K? It's ridiculous. I'm running and running. Though I had a fun moment a few weeks ago. It was like the ladies' class, and I was the only man running on the track, and I left feeling pretty good about myself. (laughs) Who's that that fine-looking man running laps like a hamster on a hamster wheel? Listen, but I have to work at it. I have to work. Oh, to be 17 again, to eat pizza and not pay the price. Okay, we all know intuitively it's better to be fit and strong than gluttonous and obese. Let's go back to Jesus. We all know that it's better if God exists. Again, just humor me, right? Humor me. I understand. Okay? I understand. Just humor me for a second. If God exists, and most importantly, if God exists in even some semblance of how we see him portrayed in the Bible as this awesome, all-powerful, glorious, beautiful, wonderful Amazing God who spoke everything that is into being by the power of his word. Can you, I, I get stoked just thinking about him. If God exists and if he exists at all, like the picture we see in scripture, would it be better to be his friend or his enemy? Just saying. Right? Like I acknowledge the fact that God may not exist. I understand that that is a reasonable doubt to struggle with and it's a reasonable question to have. Okay? And I've asked that question many times throughout my life. I've gone through seasons in my life where I've questioned God's existence, even while pastoring his church. I understand. Okay, that's normal. But if he is real, I want to be his friend. You see, ultimately, you've got to decide if you believe the universe is godless or not. If you think the universe is godless, then good luck to you. Do whatever you want. I get it. 
I get it. Just do whatever you want. But if it's not, then you better figure out who God is and how to live in relationship with said deity. Right? Am I right? You better figure that out. I'm watching a lot of stand-up comedy. It's impossible to be as funny as I want to be without cussing. It's crazy. <laughs> I won't do it. I know we're in church, but... You watch these comedians, everything funny is punctuated with a cuss word. So you get to these moments, you're like, what am I going to say? I can't say that. <laughs> you better figure out who he is and how to live in relationship with him. Doesn't that just make sense? Now look, if we're going to do that, we need holiness. Here's why. Think of God as a father. Think of him as getting up this morning, and he's going out to play golf. He's going to a very swanky country club. So he's dressed in his whites. Almost like he's playing tennis. Maybe there's like a pinstripe in his fine white knee-length shorts, because this is God we're talking about. He wouldn't be wearing short shorts. I know it. Right? Nice, manly, clean shorts. Perfectly pressed shirt. He looks like a million bucks. Not a hair out of place. His eyes are sparkling like the stars. Right? His face shines like the morning sun. He's going out to play 18 holes. And his kid hears that dad is leaving, and so he runs out from the backyard where he's been playing. Problem. The kid has been playing in the garden, and he's recently discovered the garden hose. And he has turned the garden into a mud pit. And he's realized that a mud pit is much more fun without any clothing. So he's naked as the day he was born, covered head to toe in mud. And I mean, I may or may not be pulling this from something that actually happened in someone's life. But the child was having so much fun playing in the backyard that he thought, you know, it's a waste of time to go inside to the bathroom. So the child may or may not be covered exclusively in mud, but you're not sure about it. And this child runs out to you like, hey, and wants a hug. And you're like, hang on a second. How do you pick up a kid like that? You're pristine, flawless, perfect. You love this crazy animal. But this is literally a toddler, naked and muddy, who's pooped himself. And you're pristine and glorious. Yeah, you love that little critter, but we got to do something about his filthiness first. Now, God didn't leave us alone. And our sin didn't triumph over his love. We'll get to the gospel in a minute. But we're kind of like that filthy toddler. Don't forget it. It helps with everything. If you think of yourself as naked, covered in mud, and stinking. It's very hard to be impressed with yourself when you think of yourself like that. It's very hard to pick a fight with anybody when you're like, you know, here I am. <laughs> if we made everybody come to an argument in that kind of condition, we would live in a world of peace. Because we'd be like, we can't fight right now because you need some help. And so do I. What do we do about it? Verse 13. Here's what we do about it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore. The whole thing turns on the therefore. 
Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you ought to ask yourself what it's there for. So this therefore is pointing back to last week's passage, wherein the great, glorious, beautiful, precious, magnificent, awesome, amazing, life-changing salvation that we've been given in Jesus through his resurrection is lauded to the heavens. That was last week. So in light of that great, beautiful, precious, amazing, glorious salvation that you've been given in Jesus, in light of that, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In light of that mighty, glorious salvation that you've been given in Christ. Peter here is reminding us that we've been gloriously saved in Jesus, so we ought to learn to live like it. See, this is the path of holiness. It's not cleaning yourself up so you can be with Jesus. It's recognizing that in Jesus, you've been cleaned up. You've been made fit for His presence. So now, you are designed to go out and live like it. See, you're not to try to become holy in order to be saved. You learn the way of holiness because you've been saved. Many Christians flip that one. Turns everybody off. How do you go to a world lost in sin and darkness with an ethic that suggests to them that they need to clean themselves up before they come in for a hug? You can't. It's totally off-putting. i got to qualify first. Now, you may not think that you say that, but I want you to consider whether you act like that is true in how you present your Christianity to your non-Christian friends. We don't clean ourselves up to be saved because we have been saved. We learn what it means to live clean. Think of it this way. It's like you've been given the DNA of a six-foot-eighter who can jump. Okay, think about that. It's like God decided to uh, give you six-foot-eight and ups. You can hop. Man, you can, you can dunk. Now you got to learn to play basketball. Imagine if you've been gifted with that kind of genetic material. Tall, strong. You can jump athletically gifted to high heaven, and you never picked up a basketball. What a shame. What a waste. Imagine standing before your creator one day, and he look at you like, you missed something. You missed it. That's holiness. So many Christians think of holiness as a duty. Okay, I'm here to tell you this morning, holiness is an opportunity. Receive it. It's an opportunity. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's what it literally says in the Greek. Verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your comprehension for action. One of my friends, Matt Brace, Dr. Matt, he plays bass. He's a beautiful man. So good looking, it's depressing. And he's a surgeon. You're like, wow, I did nothing with my life. <laughs> and he loves Jesus. He's amazing. It's amazing. Comes up to me every week. He reads ahead. Of course he does, because he's a doctor. 
It's like, I need to be prepared for church. And most weeks he comes, he's like, I didn't know how you were going to preach that, but wow. Today he came up, he's like, so I read that part about girding up the loins of your mind. I didn't know what they were talking about, but they were talking about exactly what you talked about. What did I talk about? Okay, what does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? It means to like tie yourself in place because you're about to go to battle. You need to be able to run fast. I'm being careful here. So you want, you know, put your jock strap on. That's what it's saying. Jock up, like get ready to go. So literally gird up, tie it up. They would literally tie, tie it up. Ready to go. For action. This is why I went to basketball. Hey, we think of holiness as a duty. Holiness is a sport. It's a sport. Gird up the loins of your comprehension for action. So get training. And maturely go in, in fact, go all in on grace. Look again at verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me unpack this a little bit. A few things that you need to be aware of here. You have agency. Okay, You are not a helpless bystander. The Apostle Peter here is saying, set your hope. As if it's something that you can lay hold of and put somewhere. Set your hope. You have agency. That's good news. You're not a helpless victim. You can do something about this. Set your hope fully. I love this. Okay, this is the Apostle Peter reminding us here to live full out. Look, take your hope and set it fully. Go all in. Okay, you know what happens in your life when you go all in on something? You decide to train all in. You decide to go all in at work. Hopefully you decided long ago to be all in in your marriage. All in with your kids. You know that there's a huge difference between meh and all in. Totally committed to the course of action. Set your hope fully. Now, the Bible's beautiful. It's just been talking to us like we're alpha people. Like, let's go, let's achieve greatness. And then it tells us it's not about us at all. Set your help fully on the grace, which is merit or favor undeserved, that will be brought to you like breakfast in bed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is so ridiculous. Uh, Thank God for it. Because just when you think you got it, you're like, no, you don't got it. Right? It's like, you have agency. Set your hope fully. Go for it. Be an alpha person. Get out there and dominate this league for Jesus. Like, do everything you can, every time you can, as hard as you can, be as awesome as you can. Let's go, right? Like, it's, yeah, rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, go with Jesus, yay, right? That's what it is. And you're like, but you're setting it fully on something you can't do. Hey, that's why it's Christianity. Because you're setting it fully on grace, merit or favor undeserved, which will be brought to you. You don't even got to go get it. In fact, you can't get it. It's brought to you, huh, like bacon and eggs in, bre- in, bre- in bed. And it's coming to you someday at the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning at his moment of great triumph, that is when your hope will be fully realized. So you live like a long-term investor. Christianity is not a house flip. 
hey, that's my hashtag for second service. Hashtag Christianity is not a house flip. Remind me later in case I forget. That'll preach right there. Okay, it's a long-term investment. Woo! Set your hope fully on grace that will be brought to you at Jesus' final triumph. Here's why Jesus' final triumph is so great. Because it's totally assured. His victory is already won. At the cross, he said, it is finished. Okay, it's done. So he's already won. So it's like this. It's like Michael Jordan is coming back, and you're going to be on his team. Your victory is nobody can ever play like Mike. All right, those of you who are old enough to have seen Michael Jordan play and LeBron James play, no question. Right, Scotty Pippen, even this morning on Twitter, was answering the question, who would you have on your team, man? MJ or LeBron? He's like, please. Right, we all know it's true. Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. The GOAT is coming back, and you get to play on his team. The victory is assured. So there's two responses you can make this. You'd be like, good, he's got it. MJ's here, word up. All right, cool. Go for it, MJ. Show me how it's done. Problem is, you've been invited to play on his team. So look, if I had an invitation to play with Michael Jordan end of the month in like a charity tournament... Guess what I'm doing tomorrow morning, 5 a.m.? I'm hitting the gym, baby. I'm in the gym. Why? Because I got to achieve the victory? No, because I got to play with the greatest of all time. Do you see? Holiness is not a duty, it's an opportunity. Holiness is an invitation. <laughs> That'll preach too. Woo! If you knew Michael Jordan was coming back to play on your team, would you not go all out with your basketball training? You and you would be like, I work on my crossover, man. I work on it. I play basketball, too. I was the one token white guy that made me play, like, forward, power forward, because I was a linebacker, so I could hit people. Didn't have much of a shot, though. So they only put me in when they did, like, whoop somebody. I was like Bill Lane Beer. Maybe I'm dating myself. Bill Lane Beer, Detroit Pistons. Not a very nice man. That was my basketball career. You've been invited to play with the champion. So let's get to work. Therein lies the how-to of holiness. Peter's here telling us to boldly bet our future on him. In fact, to boldly walk into our future with him. Look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is big. He's emphasizing here a few things. One, obedience. Two, nonconformity to your old habits. Three, the embracing of worshipful impossibility. Let's find those in the text. Obey Jesus. Verse 14, as obedient children. What does it mean to obey Jesus? Jesus himself, okay, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40 reduces all the law and the prophets down to two great commandments. Okay, He says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus himself reduces all the law and the prophets down to those two things. Love God, love people. 
with everything you've got. So what does it mean to obey Jesus? It means to love God and love people full out. Now, if you're anything like me and you need a little help, say it this way. Learn to love God and learn to love people full out. That's what I ask you. You live in clean, you're like, I'm living clean, baby. Why? Because it's a process. It's a journey. It's an opportunity. It's a sport. And you're on the field, so you're doing what you've been made to do. So you're like, yeah, I'm living clean. I'm learning to love God, and I'm learning to love people. That's what it means to obey Jesus. Obedience. Nonconformity to old habits. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do not be conformed to your former ignorance. This is why scholars think he's preaching to Gentiles here. The Gentiles' religious methodology was seriously sick and twisted. And so you have these Christians coming out of this just crazy, ritualistic, nihilistic, sexually aberrant approach to religion. Christians are coming out of this, and they're coming out from families who had worshipped their gods in that way for time out of mind. So they're literally breaking with centuries of tradition. They're literally wired to continue to worship their false gods in these aberrant, destructive ways. And Peter's saying, don't do that anymore. Walk in newness of life. Walk away from your past. Why? Well, because if anyone is in Christ, he or she are what? A new creation. Behold, the old has passed, the new has come. So how do you apply this to your life this week as you look to walk out a recipe for living clean? You try something new. Try something new this week. Could you do that? Like literally look at the order of your week and arrest it. Think of the way you always do things and change it. Try something new to the glory of God. I'm going to bike to work on Monday. You're like, how can biking help you with holiness? Try it and you'll see. It's all about breaking old patterns, trying something new to see how God rushes into the room you make for Him. Try something new. <clears throat> and let the impossibility of self-derived holiness drive you to adoration. This is what verses 15 and 16 are all about. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. On its surface, this is very depressing. Am I right? If you know yourself at all, you're like, those are my two least favorite verses. You shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the first word that occurs to you? Impossible. Impossible. You know what's really funny? Peter here is actually quoting an obscure passage from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where God is telling his people not to eat any more insects. Literally look it up. It's like, bro, you got to chill with the praying manti. It's getting out of control. No more insects, man, because you need to be holy as I am holy. You're like, that's kind of ridiculous. I know. I told you the Bible's crazy. It's beautiful. If God cares about us not eating any more insects, 
how much trouble are we in? Right? Like, I don't know about you, but like eating insects is like the least of my worries. You know? There was an old pastor who swallowed a fly. I don't know why he swallowed that fly. Perhaps he'll die. Not because of the fly, I'm here to tell you. Right? Next week we're handing out like mesh you can hold in front of your face so you don't swallow any gnats on your way out of church because God said, be holy as I am holy in the context of not eating any more insects. Hopeless. Impossible. It's impossible. But this command is not meant to drive you to despair, nor is it meant to drive you to legalism. From now on, we're all wearing face coverings with mesh. Right? It's not meant to drive you to despair, though there's no hope for me. It's not meant to drive you to legalism. It's meant to drive you to adoration. It's meant to drive you to the cross. Where you see Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled God's holy law, which means he never swallowed a fly. For real, though. Perfectly fulfilled God's holy law, fully God and fully man, and went to the cross in your place for your sins. Died in your place for your sins. Received the punishment that you should have received on his shoulders. And didn't stay dead. In fact, he rose up again the third day, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. He did it for you, to give you the opportunity to be his friend forever. To give you the opportunity to be restored to right relationship with God, which is the reason you exist in the first place, to be God's friend. So you should look at a verse like, be ye holy as I am holy, and not lose hope. In fact, you should look to Jesus and find hope. Because the bad news about the gospel is that you'll never be good enough. No matter what you do, at some point you're going to swallow a fly. <laughs> right? You can never be good enough. But the good news is Jesus was. And at the cross, his goodness came to you. And your badness went to him. It's the best news ever. Why do I take you to the gospel here? Because that's where Peter goes. He goes to the gospel. Let me finish with verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Basically, he's saying in verse 17, if we say we have relationship with God, we ought to act like it by living in fearful hope. And this can feel a little anachronistic in our hyper-positive society where we always want to say to everyone, everything's okay all the time, you're good. Okay, which is mostly true. But we also ought to live in fear of God. Why should we fear a good God? Because he's fearsome. If God is, even in the slightest way, as he is described in the pages of the Bible, Lord help us. Okay, he is fearsome. So be very, very afraid, but also be very, very hopeful. Why? Because you're almost home. How do I know this? Look at verse 17. Knowing that you were ransomed 
from the futile, sorry, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, hear this, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Exile means sojourn. He's saying you don't belong here anymore. So while you conduct yourselves in this place where you don't really belong, where you don't really fit in, do so in fear. But why is it also with hope? Because exile in the Greek literally means beside home. Beside home. We tend to think as exiles were so deeply removed from God's bosom. When we look at it in the original, we're reminded that we're almost home. Heaven is not so far away as you think. You're beside home. So conduct yourself, yes, in fear, but in hope, because you're almost there. You're almost home. And in verse 18, you're reminded that you've been loosed, set free from the painful legacy of your past. And you've been given the promise of a beautiful future in Jesus. So live like it. Worship team, I'm done. So live like it. You've been loosed from the pain of your past. You've been given the promise of a glorious future in Jesus. So live like it. That's what holiness looks like. It looks like someone who's living like their future is set. Could you work that out in your life? A lot easier than abide by this and 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 this. Or else you're in trouble. No more flies for you. Instead, you live like someone who knows their future is set. That's what holiness looks like. It looks like someone so possessed by what the blood of Jesus means, so convinced that they're part of a very old story whose author and finisher is God, so sure that the story of life is about God and His people, and so sure that they are one of those people that they believe. You believe because you've been convinced of the power and truth of the gospel. You believe knowing In the verse 18's words, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, hear this, the most important part, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you catch that last bit? Through him, you're a believer in God. This means that your belief in Jesus is upheld by Jesus. Try that one on for size this week. Your belief in Jesus is upheld by Jesus himself, which is why he gets glory, and you get faith, hope, and of course love for the one who made you what you could not make yourself. And what is that? That's holy. He made you what you could not make yourself. He has made you holy, which is why you love him, why you adore him, why you're placing all your bets on him, why you're hinging your whole life on his victory. Because he accomplished for you what you could never accomplish for yourself, holiness. You want a recipe for living clean? Jesus is the recipe. 